Hey everyone, thanks for joining me for another episode of the podcast. With me today is Steve Ellis. Steve Ellis is an industry veteran who's worked on titles such as Iron Man and Green Lantern, as well as his own work such as High Moon and The Only Living Boy. It was an absolute honor and a privilege uh, talking with Steve. We talked about so much from his start in comics to kind of what he's doing now and just everything in between. Um, I really think you guys are going to get a lot out of this conversation, and you guys are really going to enjoy it. Before we do, can you guys uh, please subscribe to the podcast and give us a review? It's something that uh, will really help the podcast out, and it doesn't take um, a lot of time or energy. And while we're on that, if you want a free issue of my uh, hit horror series, Man of Sin, uh, you could get issue one completely free uh, right to your email. All you have to do is go to aguildy.com forward slash free comic, and I'll send it right to you. So enjoy the chat, and I'll see you guys next week. Me, all right, we're recording now. So okay, uh, cool. Yeah, so so I, I had some I had a bunch of friends who did book covers back in the early '90s before, where they were still doing them in oil paint, right? And as digital got better and better, what started happening was these these guys were you know masters of craft, going and making a painting, you know putting together multiple figures with multiple backgrounds and then putting it all together in one piece and then oil painting it. Right. And then what started happening is you start seeing like the smaller companies, not like the big ones, like tour books, but the smaller companies would kind of say, well, you know, if we got someone to just kind of take a bunch of photos and paste them together and then kind of color them with Photoshop and kind of make it look oil painted kind of, well, that works too, right? So they could get a piece in like, you know, three or four days that they didn't have to pay for a month or two months of work for, right? So suddenly, you know, a cover that cost them $8,000 suddenly only cost them $500, mm. you know? And, and so an oil painter can't compete with that, right? Right. And um, so, you know, uh, it's interesting because Magic the Gathering uh pays you the same whether you do digital or oil paint oh, or whatever paint. So I think in a way that's, they, that was them recognizing that by undercutting people because they were using digital, it was kind of hurting everybody. You know? yeah, and, and they probably weren't getting the artists that might've, they might've otherwise got to, right. to yeah. that, that worked, you know, uh, traditionally. Yeah, yeah. So, so yeah. I mean, so I think, um, you know, there's definitely been some lessons learned. But yeah, because a lot of those guys that were doing that stuff got totally kicked out of the business. You know, they 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 were just and 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 it's a shame not from necessarily from any other reason than there's just like less amazing artwork out there. You know, like yeah. Uh, I, I go to Gen Con every year and I walk around. and I see all the hand painted pieces, and it's just. Um, there's nothing like walking into a piece and, and walking into a place and seeing like, you know, a bunch of ogres painted in, you know, uh, oil paint or acrylic. And you can like see the texture of the brush strokes and the paint and everything. It's amazing. You know, it's like the same thing when you look at a comic book page and you're like looking at the ink, you know, yeah. and you're like, wow, how did they, you could see the brush strokes and the, you know, you can see the movement of the artist in the work. And it's like, it's a story, you know, in and of itself. Yeah, and I love I love that you said earlier how there's beautiful mistakes in there. Yeah, that like yeah. You, oh yeah, yeah. That that you yeah. don't necessarily get sometimes. Um, yeah, with digital, which I think 
I, I love that too. The stuff where just as someone who, who, you know, I don't know anything about, you know, what, it, what it means to be an artist. Um, but I love art, you know, obviously I, I write comic books. I'm in the comic yeah, yeah. book kind of, kind of, yeah, yeah. In, in the comic book world. And I love seeing that stuff where it's just like, man, this doesn't like, I don't know if they did this on purpose or not, but this is awesome. Like the, like the, just the, just the, yeah. the and it feels like really, I don't want to use the word real because that, I, I don't know if that does it justice, but there's like a, a soul to it that sometimes yeah. you don't get. Well, it's like anything like it's like I, I kind of liken it to dancing or playing jazz mm. to a certain degree. The material, if the material has a personality like watercolor is a different personality than ink. And whether you're using nib pen or brush to ink, they have different personalities. And I have I, oh, I teach students at SU and they're like they want to draw with Micron. Micron has no personality at all. So you have to enforce a personality on it by like, I'm going to use the Micron 16 times over this area to get a nice thick line, which gives you lots of control. But another artist would just grab a brush and go, done. You know, like Dick Ayers or whatever, it'd be done. Like, so there's not this kind of trying to like, in a way, artificially make it something. There's a natural, like, this is what this material does. So let's see what it does when it's, when it's allowed to be itself, you know? Yeah. And, and as a, as a teacher who, who's teaching young artists kind of coming up and, and getting into it, what are, you know, what are some of those, those lessons that you, you, you talked about it, uh, you know, the George Lucas thing off air yeah. before we, we got on, but what are some of the lessons that, you know, you wish you knew when you first started coming up that oh you, my God, there's that like you're, a million of them. <laughs> yeah. That you're, that, that you're now passing on as a teacher. Yeah. Well, okay. You know, um, so I teach a, one of the classes that I teach is illustrate is uh, I teach mostly the craft kind of stuff. So I teach drawing for illustrators and I teach uh, media arts, which is basically testing different media and the drawing for illustrators class. Like we never had that when I was a student. And so I'm teaching them per, like, like I didn't know perspective. I had to figure out perspective while I was working in comics. Cause I went, Holy crap. I don't know how this works. And I got to figure it out. So I like bought a bunch of books on perspective because I had no idea what I was doing. Um, and, uh, and, you know, and, uh, you know, I was working at Marvel. I had no idea what I was doing. <laughs> hold <laughs> like, on, hold I have on. to figure this out. You hold know? On. I, I gotta, I gotta do like a, like a, a sidebar. So you were working yeah. at Marvel. Yeah. The big yeah. two as yeah. an artist. Well, and well, that, no okay. That's the first, thing. Off, first off, how did that happen? Like okay, you started so, working with Marvel. What happened was I, okay. So I, when I was in, when I was at, in college, uh, Dick Giordano came up and did like a class with us where he kind of had us run through a script and he introduced me to one of the editors over at DC and the DC editor gave me a script. But then after getting the script, I did a bunch of pages, never heard anything back at all. Like, no, it was basically like complete silence. So then I sent those pages to Vert, to uh, Valiant. And they got angry at me because they're like, you're still in college. We can't work with you. You need to work in our office in New York City and you're four hours away. So, you know, whatever. So when I graduated, I, I was like, okay, well, Valiant's mad at me, so I better not go to them. And DC ignored me. So, you know, I'll send stuff around. And I, and I was like, Marvel's never going to touch me. Because at the time, this was like the Marvel Jim Lee and, mm. and those guys were like, you know, kicking butt, right? So I'm like, well, they're never going to touch me. 
so I sent stuff to Dark Horse and you know every other company but Marvel because I was like, you know, why even bother, right? And no one got back to me or they sent me rejection letters and you know, and I was feeling really bad about it. And my friend Harry was like, just send it to Marvel and see what happens. I'm like, all right, all right, I'll do it. So I, I got a bunch of editors' names and I made a little bunch of packages and I sent it off to Marvel. And I got within a week, I got a call from Mar- from one of the editors over there and he, he wanted me to work on an Iron Man story. That's awesome. Yeah, well, so, like the, like the last place you thought, yeah, would exactly. ever pick totally you. Only the last, you know, and not only like, and not working on any character. I'm working on Iron Man, like the first thing out of the gate, right? And it wasn't a whole issue; it was a five page story in the back um, of uh, of a story, uh, but but still, it was like a foot in the door, right? So I get in there, and I I you know I, I was working at home, you know, and so I had to set up a studio at home because I had nothing, you know, in my house at all to to do. So I set up a studio and. And, um, you know, went into, went into the city, met with the art director, went with the editor. He gave me the script. And then I walked out of there. I'm like, I have no idea what I'm doing, like, at all. So I kind of had to, like, learn on the fly. And then, um, and, I, and, I, and I, I mean, I poured every bit of energy into those pencils that I could possibly find. Like, all my, and the... I, you know, I mailed, I mailed, I, I brought the pages in, dropped them off. They were going to bring them over to an anchor and they're like, well, we don't really have anything for you right now, but we're going to keep you on our list. Cause they were pretty happy with the way they looked. I'm like, oh, cool. So I go home and I'm kind of, and then the books come. And like, this was like one of those things where like the book was literally printed like two weeks after I did it. Oh, wow. Yeah. It was like last minute thing. So I totally got in there like by mistake. And, uh, so I get the books and I look at it and, and, and it was like the inker's first job too. And it looked like it, it just was. And I remember walking home going, I never ever going to work in comics again. <laughs> right. I'm like, this is it. Like if this is my debut, like I'm toast. Right. So I walk into the, in, into my house and I'm like, literally, I put the I put the, the the comics down and then the phone rings and it's the editor and he's like I have a project do you want to work on Spider-Woman? And I was like okay like literally I just put the comics down and he calls me so I go I, I go back into the city and I sit down and I meet with the editor and he's like yeah yeah here's the project you're going to be doing the second two issues of Spider-Woman. I'm like oh okay fine. And then it kind of built from there like I would do a project here and then and then when 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 Marvel started getting quiet, I just basically told Valiant, "Oh yeah, remember you guys were going to hire me last year?" And they didn't remember, so I just kind of BS my way into working on Ninjak. And then like, <laughs> and then it kind of went from there. I'm like, okay, well I've I've worked at Marvel and Valiant. Well, let's see if DC will hire me. So I ended up doing stuff over there. It was like basically like once I got a credit, I could just kind of say, "Hey, I have a credit here. Hey, I have a credit there," and I was kind of pushing it around. Um, so, so like, yeah, so, so what I do in my drawing class is I, I, I go after anatomy big time. I go after perspective and, uh, and, and composition, which I didn't really have much composition and storytelling. And, and it's all the things that I would have wanted to have had to teach me how to do what I ended up doing. Um, you know, so I, and I think a lot of teachers do that. They end up going, well, I didn't have this, so I'm going to teach that. And so you end up with the, the next generation getting what the last generation didn't get 
and probably not getting what the last generation got, you know? <laughs> yeah. You know, I'm uh, my day job is I'm an English teacher and oh, I, yeah. do the, I do the same exact thing uh, with my students. Like I, what, what didn't I learn that I wish yeah. I, I, I like, how, how could I, what would I would have, you know, what would I want as a student? And that's right, kind of, right. and that's, and that's what I, you know, bring to the table. So I, I love hearing that. And that whole story <laughs> about, uh, you know, you thinking you're done and then you get the yeah. next job. Like that's gotta be just, I, could, yeah, I mean, you can't make be, it up. Right. Yeah. I literally put the books down. There were, there were, my eyes were welling up. Like I could, you know, I, I mean like literally welling up with tears and then the phone rang and I was like, hello. You know, <laughs> like it's, it's so weird too, because that like should be, that's like the moment you dream of, right? Like you finally yeah. get your art, like you're in a Marvel book. Like that's, yeah. that's yeah. even like, that's the top, right? Your top shelf. Yeah, then... right. Yeah, and and the other thing is, like, to be completely fair, it's not that the art, not that the inker did a bad job. It just didn't look like what I expected it to look like. Right. You know what I mean? It was like, oh wait, this is a whole different ball game than what I thought. You know, like, I just didn't, I just didn't know enough to know what to expect when I put down the lines, what they were going to look like when they were inked. Right. I hadn't had that experience before. You know. Yeah, and so and then you kind of took that and ran with it. So that that's that's yeah, awesome. And, and, and yeah, and for a while it was a lot of hook, hook and by crook, uh, you know, basically because because back then and and it's it's really different now. Back then you could walk into the Marvel or DC offices. Well, not DC so much, but Marvel. You literally could walk up, say hi to the secretary, tell her, "Hey, yeah, I'm here to see blah blah blah." Even though you weren't <laughs> set up with a meeting, that you know, I was in the neighborhood and I wanted to see if I could talk to you know Nell or whoever, right? And they'd be like, "Oh yeah, we'll buzz you in." And then they buzzed you and you walk in, you could literally go hang out in the bullpen and, and talk to the artists in the bullpen or walk around from room to room and literally drop off packages in the editor's desk, which probably drove them nuts. But like, you know, you could go in, you could check in and say, hey, do you have a moment to talk? And they'd be like, yeah, sure. Come on in. And then you would introduce yourself. And you, but like that, that really ended like a few years later, you know? Oh, when, really? Yeah. Cause I mean like now, well, they got a lot more corporate, so there were a lot more barriers to getting in. And uh, and then also, like, one of the things you could do back then, too, is you could go to a convention and there'd be editors there. And you literally would walk up to an editor and say, hey, here's my stuff. What do you think? And right. that just doesn't happen anymore. Like, it just, like, um, the, the whole, the whole bit way of, there was a certain, like, kind of Old West feeling to it, you know, where, like, you could make your own... If you if you could talk a good game, you could make your own way in it, and and like and that's why you end up seeing guys like Jimmy Palmiotti. You know, like there's a guy who could talk a good game, and he just charmed everyone into getting work. I'm sure that you know, <laughs> not that he wasn't talented. That's not the case, but the guy is really charming, and he can talk to anyone. He is like I've never seen anyone with the ability to just charm everyone he meets. Like literally. I, I can't imagine him walking into a room and not everyone going, wow, it's Jimmy. You know? <laughs> right. So like, you know, so I think his, his, a huge part of his career has come not, I mean, like I said, really, really super talented guy, but talent only gets you so far, you know, being charming is, is a real talent. It's a real yeah. skill. <laughs> it probably, it probably allowed a lot of doors in the beginning to open. Yeah, that- exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so you say it's different now. So what advice would you give like a new artist or someone trying to break in to, to work with the, to work at the big two or work at, you know, wherever, you know, X company. 
You know, it, it is so completely different than, than it was. And it, it's almost a little daunting to say because like literally when I, when I first started working there, what I did was I went into the comic book store when I first started working in the business, I would do this every couple months. I would go into the comic book store. I'd walk through when the guy wasn't looking I'd flip to the front page or wherever they had the credits. And I look and, write down the name in my, in my, in my book, I'd write down the names of all the editors at all the different companies. And I just go through and I, you know, cause I couldn't buy everything cause I didn't have a lot of money, but I'm like, okay, all right, that guy and that guy, okay, he's doing this book and he, you know, she's doing that book and they're doing, you know, whatever. And I'd find out all the names of the editors and the assistant editors, which was even more key because the assistant editors were the ones that had to look through the slush pile. Mm. And, uh, and so then, you know, you would, you would, you know, I would basically go home, make a, ton of copies and then you know stuff you know spend hours stuffing envelopes and just mailing you know letters you know letters of like you know introduction and mailing them in or if i already knew the person i'd write a little like hey you know we talked at blah 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 and then here's a letter and the i mean the internet totally changed every aspect of that and now like people get um you know i think it is still, you have to be charming, right? You know, but it's now you have to be internet savvy charming, which is a, a different animal altogether. And I think it's even more of a professional um, requirement to be, um, what's the word? Internet charming, like, or whatever you want to call it. Like, you know, how, how does someone who's brand new get a following? Yeah. You know, and the people you see getting a following like, you, you know, you, it's one of those things where I look at Instagram and I see like, oh, they did a whole bunch of character portraits straight on faces of young women, right? And their whole page is that. And they have 500,000 followers, right? But they're selling themselves as a comic artist. Can they actually draw a page? Yeah. Could they yeah. actually do the job that they're trying to get? And, and frequently they can't, right. you know? So like that's not the best way to go. Right. And, um, so like, I mean, like I, I talk like a lot of my students that I'm teaching now, they're not really, they're not really coming from the standpoint, which is interesting. They're not really coming from the standpoint of superheroes. Almost none of them. Hmm. Um, yeah, I would, I would not have guessed that. Yeah. They're they're to them. Comics are lumberjanes uh adventure time um reina tegelmeyer's books um you know and they do know mike mignola but like they're not they don't they don't necessarily connect like a captain america movie with a captain america comic that's interesting yeah i mean like literally like when they draw comics they're almost always um, cartoony and animated looking, like hmm. almost every time. Um, and maybe with a manga influence. I can see the yeah. ma- the the manga influence. That's really like really big on on like webtoons. Like that's the that's the new yeah. generation of things. So I could I could definitely see that in Adventure Time. I guess a little bit now. The inf- and I wonder if that's not why you know why the Marvels and DCs you know that traditional model that we are used to isn't necessarily the model that is going to maintain itself, you know? Do you, I guess looking at like the comic book market, 
you would probably kind of know this better. I've always had, I've had this feeling recently. Do you think they're ever going to move away from monthly issues and go more towards trades or how how, how do you see that kind of unfolding? It's funny. Like back in the, in the late nineties when Marvel, (laughs) this is like ancient, right? Marvel was having a lot of trouble. They had just gone, um, they had just, Marvel had bought this place called Heroes, uh, which was a distributor. And they were trying to build their own distribution system alongside Diamond. So they wouldn't have to go through Diamond or Capital City, which was another distributor. Well, in the, in the process of that, Capital City went under, Heroes went under, and Marvel had to go back to Diamond, right, to, to work. Uh, and so what ended up happening was there was this great shrinking of the market. Marvel went, you know, bankrupt. Um, they looked like they, you know, they, that's when they sold, you know, Captain Spider-Man and, and Hulk to Sony. And in the late nineties, early two thousands, we used to go to conventions and I would have, we would have these like big, I don't even know. I wouldn't call them meetings cause they weren't like official, but it was like, you know, you'd go to the bar and you'd talk to people and try to make connections. And then later on, you'd end up going to like a lobby in a hotel and everyone would just sit there and talk about the business. And um, I remember having this conversation back then. And we were all, you know, were a lot of people even then saying maybe the, the, the 20 page comic isn't the, uh, the way to go anymore. And that's 20 years ago, more than, you know, that's, yeah, that's 20 years ago. Right. And and then manga, you know, the manga books came in and they kicked major butt in Barnes and Noble and bookstores, which kind of encouraged, you know, gra- uh, comic book companies to start doing the, uh, the trades, right? I, and, and then we were all like, well, maybe now comics are going to disappear. You know what I mean? Like, and, um, and not that we were like hoping they would disappear, but it just seemed like it was a an archaic model to some degree, but it's the model that kept the stores open, you know? Right. And so like, we were thinking like, you know, maybe, maybe Marvel will do something like, imagine they've got four Spider-Man titles. What if they ran four titles? Like instead of doing it four titles a month or four separate titles, you have one title a month, four books that could be put into a trade and you would be collecting them over the months ahead of time. So like team A would work for four months and then you'd put their book out in month five. Team B would work for more months and you'd put their book out in month six. And so you'd have this different system where basically you could pick up all four issues of a trade and or get it in a trade, but it would still be monthly. So you'd have a you'd have like a a four issue trade every month instead yeah. of having four separate titles. Right. You know? And so we were thinking maybe that's what they'll do. Cause like, that seemed like it might, it might fix the problem between the periodical that the store relies on and the, uh, and the, the, the having enough material for the Barnes and Nobles, Mm -hmm. you know what I mean? But that never materialized. And it just seemed like what ended up happening for a long time. And, and sometimes it's more successful than others where you're like, Clearly they wrote this four, six issue series for the trade because the first issue is unsatisfying. And then am I supposed to read this and then want to read the next one, hoping that it, you know, that the story is interesting by the time I get to issue four. 
And, and so like, there was a lot of writing it for the trade that, that felt really too wide open. And then you'd find out that after you got a six issue trade, it was really a story that in the eighties would have been one issue. Right. Okay. You know, yeah. so, so there's a lot of like, you know, there, there, there's a, there's been a lot of experimentation with all those different formats. And I don't know what, what the right way it is. I mean, like, you know, I mean, like, um, I guess the thing is like, I sit down, like, I think Mike Mignola is a good example where you read an individual issue of Hellboy and you feel like you read something. Mm-hmm. And then when you read the trade of it, you feel like you read a bigger thing. But a lot of times when I read the comics, I feel like I'm only getting a moment. And I'm not even getting a full episode in a 20 page comic. So, but that's not every writer, not, you know, some writers pack a whole story into 20 pages and they build it, you know, but and other writers don't do that. And I I don't know what, for me, it's unsatisfying to spend three or $4 on a comic and not get a full story, Mm -hmm. you know, Um, or at least some sort of resolution, you know, in, in, in the arc of the story. But, you know, so I think there's a place for the 24 page comic, but, or 22 page comic or 20 page comic, but only if the writers really, if the writer and the artist really know what they're doing, you know? Yeah. That and the sense. editors, I guess too. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I go back and forth. Like I, I really do enjoy getting single issues. I really enjoy um, that whole comic book store experience. Like, I think yeah. that's, that's, yeah. that's really cool. Like that's something I feel like there's something like really like just like American about that. I I, I haven't traveled a ton. Like yeah. I don't know what it's like in Europe or other places, but like I feel like there's like this something really cool about that, or like just going through and just just being in there. Yeah. But as as a as a reader, I prefer the trades. Yeah. Because like I want to I want to die. Um, like I blame Netflix. Like I want to sit and like just read the whole thing. Sure. But well, I mean, I remember, you know, I used to love going into a comic book store and it's, I mean, literally I would, I would hang out with the store owner and we'd talk shop and we'd hang out, you know, and other people would come in and we'd talk about, you know, the different comics that were on the racks and things we liked. And you'd, oh, what do you like this one? Oh, check that out. And there was a whole relationship there. And the thing is like the new generation of readers doesn't get their comics from a comic book store necessarily. It's true. You know? Yeah. Some comic book stores are getting like, uh, what is it? Where is it? Um, well, like the trades, right? Like, you know, right now, tons of kids are being introduced to comic books through scholastic books, mm-hmm. right? They're not going through the comic book stores. I that's mean, they true. are some stores, some stores are, are, are doing it, but that's not where they're finding them. They're finding them in the library and they're finding them in the, in the, you know, the bookstore or Barnes and Noble, or they're finding them at the, the sale that Scholastic does when they come to your school and bring all the books, you know, I mean, like that, that's where they're finding Captain Underpants and, you know, and all the other stuff. And, you know, not the Captain Underpants is a comic, but it certainly is related, you know? Right. Yeah. It, and, and it, it, it gets them. Meat, yeah. And it gets you know? them kind of into the wanting more yeah. of that stuff. And then they read Dogman, which okay. is a comic. Yeah. And has nothing to do with our industry at all, and probably outsells everything on our st- on the stands in, in the in the in the Marvel DC world. So, you know? I think who's who's I talking to? 
I had someone on the podcast who was mentioning that, like Dogman outsells like everyone. Yeah. By oh, far. Raina Tegelmeyer. Like a few years ago, I remember sitting in on the, um, oh, I forget what they call it, but they have like a, a meeting of like publishers and um, distributors at um, New York Comic Con. I forget what they call it, but it's ICV2, I think it's called. Uh, anyway, it's like, it's basically like the big meeting where store owners, and distributors and publishers all sit together and they go over all the numbers and, and the health of the industry. And like, they were like, yeah, well, Raina Tegelmeyer's books outsold the entire comic book industry. Like the and entire- everyone went, wait, what? Yeah. Raina Tegelmeyer by herself outsold the entire comic book industry. Holy smokes. Yeah. So like, <laughs> yeah. And, and that, that's why, I mean, and then since that, you know, since then, I mean, like, I was already on, well on my way to working on The Only Living Boy with David because I was kind of on the same path anyway in some ways. Like, I, I definitely enjoy doing a, a more adult material um, and serious stories and really, you know, and The Only Living Boy is a really serious story. Uh, David, you know, uh, it just really has a lot of uh, depth to it. But the reason we did it was because or in, for me at least was because I went and I took my son to go pick up comics and he was 10 years old. And I was like, I'm going to get my kid really into comics. Right. Cause he had like some stuff before and I'd gotten him like the Batman animated series, but he wanted the real Batman. And I'm, you know, he's 10 and I'm like, okay, cool. All right, let's pull up Batman and we'll pick it up. And I'm, I'm looking through it and I'm like, huh? Joker has his face chopped off. And Batman's having sex with Catwoman as a double-page spread. I don't know if I want my son reading that. You know what I mean? Like, and I'm like, I'm not against the material, but he's ten. You know? Right? Yeah. I no, like, I could, I completely get that you know? for sure. So I'm like, he's ten, and and maybe when he's fifteen, that's okay. But ten, no. You know? <laughs> so then, I, then, that's what really motivated me to do the Only Living Boy and the Only Living Girl because I'm like, well, there's a market for. The fact, you know, just the fact that when I was 10, I was reading Jack Kirby comics or, you know, probably not even Jack Kirby. I was reading, you know, the X-Men, you know, and I was reading, um, what do you call it? Uh, Mark Grunewald's Captain America and stuff like that. When I was that, you know, you know, that was what I was reading. I was reading the regular comics that came out in the comic book store, you know, Web of Spider-Man, like all that stuff. And they were, you know, they were dark and they were threatening and they were scary, but they were not that adult, right? Mm. Or at least not that explicitly adult. You know, it was still the time when Wolverine had to stab someone in the silhouette. And you kind of sat there and went, whoa, that's so cool. He stabbed that guy. But you don't actually see it, you know? And, uh, and, and I think we, we, we hit that, like, you know, you're talking about Netflix before that point where we can show everything, but now we've now made it so that we have to put mature labels on everything and the entire business, the entire, like most of the comic book industry is at least what, you know, 14 and up. And so how do you pull people in? And then when they're pulled in and they're reading Redna Tegelmeyer or they're reading, you know, Captain Underpants or Dogman, are they going to say, oh, I see Dogman is related to Iron Man and I want to go read that now. Yeah, you know, probably not. It doesn't yeah. happen. 
It doesn't yeah. happen. So now they want to look at more cartoony stuff. They want to see the more expressive, crazy, cartoony stuff. And then Iron Man gets more and more realistic because the older audience demands something more realistic. And the younger kids want crazy, bombastic, wild adventures that aren't in the comics anymore. You know? I mean, Batman's not going around the world doing crazy adventures where he's, you know, going and, you know, it's all really dark and scary and there's characters with their heads being ripped off and, you know, their souls being pulled out. You know, it's not like, not Batman in the same, you know, it's not that same, it's cool. Like, don't get me wrong, it's really cool, but it's not that thing that I think that the younger audience needs to keep them, take them into it, you know? So what do you, what do you think is that, is there a bridge gap? Like, what's, what's the, do you have like a, a solution to this? I don't, I don't. Like, because here's the thing, right? If you, if you bring, I mean, you, you know this, right? You teach, you teach high school kids, right? You know the attitude. If you were to bring a kid, oh, here's Batman Adventures. They see the adventures and they know this is not really Batman. Yeah, they, they right? know it's they a know, no, no, no. I want that. I want that one you're not showing me that's in the back rack there that has Batman spread eagle. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> they know, like they know, they know they, they could see right through your bullshit, you know, Oh no, this is really Spider-Man, but how come it's not in continuity? Like what's going like they figure it out really quick and they they see through your bullshit and they don't want that. And, so and, they want yeah. the they want the official real thing. They don't want to feel like they're being um what's the word? The, uh, they, they're marginalized. Yeah, and not not only that too, it's <laughs> they're really good with the internet. So they're yeah. gonna find it anyway. Like they're gonna know. Well, yeah, and that's <laughs> yeah, and, and that's true too. But like, but like, what what happens is what I found is that gr- grown up comic book readers are fully fine with reading a comic where the character stands around and talks for twenty four pages. That's very true. Yeah, and younger readers don't want to read a comic book that's like that. They they probably just you know they go eh, and then start playing a video game or watching a movie or whatever. Because this is not exciting anymore. You know, I, if you're just going to have a bunch of people in their underwear talking for 24 pages, it may be they're talking about the you know fate of the universe, but they're not going to get into it. And I've seen that, you know. Yeah. So what was what was it like working on Only Living Boy, which um, was your kind of first move into the YA? Kind yeah, of. yeah. Well, it was it was honestly really uh, exciting because one of the things that like the feeling was okay, let's take off all the gloves and do, let's do the kind of adventure we would have wanted to read when we were 10. So like, you know, like um, in the same way that, you know, like one of, one of the big influences, you can see it right on the cover is the moon with the break in it. Cause Thunder the Barbarian, right? Okay. It made no sense at all. But it was awesome. And there was like always a crazy monster and there was always something to shoot at. And, you know, there was always something crazy going on that you had to fight and defend against and save people and this and that. And so we're like, you want to have that energy of just this relentless, like, let's do this. Let's go do that. Oh, man, I have a crazy idea that might solve this problem. It doesn't work. Oh, no. What do we do now? You know, and like and so there was so the only living boy is just that it's that idea of like, how do we get the energy in, you know, in the comic that has that, that has that life of like, you know, 
like so, so you know so when, when we first started with the only living boy the original concept was and it's funny uh the original concept was going to be a kid who's in new york city after a zombie apocalypse and he's the only survivor that's pretty dark. So, That's pretty dark for a YA. Exactly. <laughs> right. right. What happened was immediately we said, yeah, what happens when he sees his zombie parents or his zombie little brother? Or like, you know what I mean? Like we suddenly went, holy crap, that's scary as hell. We've got to figure out another way around it. You know what I mean? Because like if you see the first strip we did, it's literally this kid all by himself in this house watching TV, looking to see if there are any reports about what's going on, and then boarding up the house from the things that are trying to get in. And it's scary. You know? and it's like, That's so like, like, okay, that was intense. So maybe, um, and so, so we, we, we decided to go in a different way with that, you know, obviously, um, because that was just too intense on the surface. And, uh, and we, I'm glad we did because we went much more for adventure and crazy worlds and, you know, the, the, like I wanted the same sense from the reading an episode of the only living boy that you would get from, you know, reading a, you know, a Jack Kirby comic, you know, like the new gods, like, Oh yeah, we're going to create a whole new world and we're going to throw you right in the middle of it. And you have no idea. And like one of the things is like, you know, flash Gordon was like that. Right. Or in all those other characters, um, John Carter of Mars. Right. We're going to take you out of your world and we're going to throw you into this other world and you have to sink or swim. But all of those guys always had skills. You know, John Carter of Mars was a former soldier. Uh, what's his name? Flash Gordon was a, uh, a football star slash, you know. I, I forgot whatever. Flash Gordon was a football star. And then you. Yeah, yeah. you he was I, a football uh, star. And I think he was a military guy, too. So it was like, the fun idea was, what if you did that same story, but with someone who's completely unprepared for it? Yeah, uh, a, young, a young boy, yeah. Yeah, so you, you take, he's not strong, he's not, he doesn't have any of the answers, and he's got to figure it out. And so the whole story is about figuring out how to be the hero. You know, you're not a hero at the beginning. Like, he's not a hero at all. And, and he doesn't figure it out the way, you know, even Luke Skywalker is, led pretty much by the nose with Ben Kenobi to being the hero almost immediately. You know he's going to be the hero, right? Whereas, you know, what we wanted to try with this was, what if the other characters are the heroes? And he's kind of the one that kind of is the glue for the heroes. You know, he's the one that keeps them from killing each other. That's awesome. Rather than the one that is the, the, the most powerful fighter or the most intelligent this or whatever, you know. He's the one that kind of goes... I don't know. Maybe we can do this. And everyone goes, that's not a bad idea. Okay. You know, like, so, so that, that's kind of what follows through in the story is he's just kind of bumbling his way through these things. And that's what made it kind of exciting too, is like, it made me think of what it was like to be a kid facing the world and going, I don't know what the hell I'm doing. And and if you didn't have your parents, you'd just be like, I, I, I love I love almost the parallel to the first story where you, you where you you get out of college and you're working yeah. with Marvel and you have no idea you literally yeah, said no I have no idea, idea. yeah <laughs> and you gotta yeah I, 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 yeah I mean that that's exactly right like making it up as you're going along right yeah. and and trying not to look like you're making it up as you're going along that was like the whole thing for years you know I still feel like I'm doing that half the time <laughs> yeah like you know. No one's going to notice that. I really have no idea what I'm doing, right? <laughs> do you do you get that feeling often still? Like where you're at in your career and 
Yeah, you, sometimes. Yeah, 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 yeah. How, how do you get over that? Oh, well, I mean, it, you know, it, it's, it's funny. Like, um, I don't know if you ever do. I think it's funny because I, I think everybody, one of the things I noticed was as I've gotten further in, like as I've gone longer in the industry, the people who were my heroes have become some of my friends. Mm. And then like, and they were like the people like, Ooh, they were the untouchable hero, right? The art hero. Right. And then you get to talk to them and you're like, you're just as neurotic as I am. What the hell? You know, like, I thought you'd have this figured out, right? You know, you're like, what the hell? Like, you didn't, you know, and you realize they have just as much, like, you know, concerns about all the same shit, you know, as you do. And you're like, you mean this is never going to end, you know? Um, <laughs> that, you know, that's just that's something that the the more I, I, I talk to different people in comics, the more I've... I've learned that that's normal. That's a human thing. Like, you yeah, know, when you're, when, when, when you're first yeah. starting out, you're just like, Oh my gosh, like, is someone going to call me on this? Like, yeah. I'm, yeah. I, like, like, how are they just letting me do this? And then there are a few lucky people who get mentors. That's and true. I think when you get a mentor, that can be huge. Cause you'll see the people who had someone who, who like thought early on, I need to have someone show me how to do this. Uh, they have a certain amount of savvy uh, about how to like how to have a meeting you know <laughs> early on you know how to how to how to talk about the work professionally you know rather than going i don 't know what I do, I just draw pictures you know so <laughs> yeah I, um, and, yeah, I know that's one thing uh, when I like talk about my own books and stuff i'm just like, man, I got to get better at talking about myself because yeah, like yeah, i don't yeah. do it i don't do it often. Well, yeah, I mean, like, that's one of the things that I learned a lot from David is, you know, um, I and, and it's something that the industry has also changed about. Like, when I first went to comic book conventions years ago, you would literally, it was quiet for the most part because the artists were sitting there sketching and looking like this, right, the whole time. And they had their, their pages of their comics that they'd done for Marvel and DC out on the table. And they were the only ones allowed at the conventions, as artists were the ones who had like, you had to have professional credits at the big two because there was nobody else. Right. Maybe dark horse, but you know, really it was like the big two or, or very little else. And that was the only way to get a table. And then you, and it was quiet because if you weren't one of the people that was well-established, there was no one talking to you <laughs> basically because the fans were so like, I want to, you're not Bill Sienkiewicz, you know, like that was it. Like, you know, <laughs> you didn't do my favorite issue of Hulk, you know? So like the fans didn't really have, there wasn't a lot of interaction. So you kind of just sat there and we ended up talking to each other, the other artists, you know, all like there was a whole cabal of, of young artists that we all got to know each other. And, you know, a lot of them are no longer in the business because there was a lot of fall off, but, but the, the, but we didn't, we didn't know that you had to make a table to sell stuff. Hmm. Right. And I remember watching Bill Tucci when I first met him and I thought he was nuts. Right. Because I sat down there and I was working with him on um, the Atomic Angels for a while and um, I sat down there and uh, we went to conventions and he'd be up standing there shaking people's hands going, Hey, how you doing? Like talking to people like his, his mother would be sitting there with a megaphone announcing everything at like, <laughs> well, I, yeah, that's crazy. decibels. Uh, but but 
but he was talking to everyone. He was interacting with everyone. I don't know if he, if anyone told him to do that, but again, it's like Jimmy Palmiotti, like same kind of thing. They had this, uh, they both had this very personable way of talking to everyone, you know, and making everyone feel like they were the focus of their attention. Even though they were in this place with like thousands of other people, they could, they had this way of making you feel like you knew that you were the one that they were talking to. And I think that really made a difference and watching him. And then we're talking like 99, like that long ago. And then the business has slowly over the years turned more like the artist alleys have gotten more and more professionalized. Right now you see more and more of the artists standing behind their table with their art on the wall, shaking people's hands, talking about their work, not really sitting there necessarily drawing half the time anymore. Um, and the ones who sit there and draw are completely ignored. That makes you know? sense. Yeah. yeah I, um, I mean, like, like Aaron Cooter figured this out for one, it was like, he was hurting his back, but I remember he, he was showing me, he took his, his chair and flipped it upside down and put a board on top of it on top of the table. And he would just draw with the board wedged in the chair. And <clears throat> so that he was standing up when people were walking by. So when they walked by, they weren't looking down at him. And, and a lot of times, like if you said, you know, a lot of people, they're looking down at the top of someone's head while they're, they don't want to bother you. They're mm, like, that- oh, he's interested in something. I don't want to talk to him. So they just keep walking. And then that person looks up and they're like, no one wants to talk to me. You know, that is, <laughs> and then they go back to their drawing, you know. That is and, such um, a that's such a good like just pro hack or tip. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. And and so so you know the the anything you can do like it's really hard for me because I really love drawing at cons. Right. I like doing so. Like I've tried to figure out different ways of presenting it. Um, like having an easel and drawing up right so people can watch me draw drawing really big things as opposed to little things, um, and just trying to figure out ways of interacting. Some people just have given up drawing at conventions altogether and sell their prints. Hmm. And, and it's one of those things that's really interesting is you'll see, and this is like uh, something you'll hear a lot of pros complain about, right? So you'll have a pro sitting there doing like a guy, a guy 20 years, 30 years, 40 years in the field, right? Classic guy sitting there at his table drawing because he's got commissions, right? He's got some prints on the table, but no one's bothering him because he's sitting there. Maybe there's one or two people like hanging over him, watching him draw, but that's it. And then you've got this guy who traced photos from the internet of Superman and then made a, colored it on his computer and then made a whole wall of the prints and is standing there just selling prints like a madman. And sometimes he's traced the artwork of some of the other people in the artist's alley and he's selling the prints and he's making bank while the guys who actually work on the books and create those, those visuals and created the things that he's just kind of copied are sitting there, you know, not able to make a buck off of it at a show. I mean, granted, it's not there. They they'll, they'll probably do some originals and sell, you know, some stuff like that, but still it's the, there's a certain amount of this guy's making money off their backs. You know, luckily I'm doing my own projects. No one, no one cares about the only living boy the way they care about Deadpool. Mm-hmm. So since I'm not drawing Deadpool, I don't have to worry about someone ripping off my Deadpool drawing to make a print out of it. But, um, you know, but, but I can definitely see yeah. how that's a huge problem. Oh yeah. I mean, I, I mean, there've been, there, there have been literally fist fights on the <laughs> floors of conventions because 
that's my image you're selling. Right. You know? And, uh, you know, and, and then, you know, there's also just the situation that at a certain point, like way back when there was, when I first started in the business, there was a question like, are we allowed to do drawings of Marvel characters mm. at a con? Okay. That's fine because it's original art, like legally fine. It's original art. We can do that. Okay, cool. We would talk to Marvel and they're like, oh yeah, yeah, you can do that because it's original art. We don't own that. That's your piece. Go with it, right? But making prints of those characters was totally illegal. Really? Yeah, well, because Marvel and DC own the copyrights. Mm. And the copyright is literally the right to reproduce. It's, it, 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 it's, it's funny because the word is copyright. You know, like it's the right to copy it. And so once you make a reproduction of it, you suddenly made it into a product. It's no longer an original. And so now it's competing with their products. And at some point, like we could have gone left, we went right. And Marvels and D- the Marvels and DCs of the world just kind of stopped looking at it and not concerning themselves with it. And so since no one stopped it from happening, it's become the basically the, 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 the center post of a lot of conventions. And, and I, I don't know, I mean, wonder, maybe it's because if a Deadpool movie comes out and there's a convention that week, Marvel can pretty much guarantee they're going to own the artist alley because it's going to be all Deadpool pictures. And now they've just adver- they've got free advertising. I was maybe gonna that's say, it, yeah. That's know? what I was, I was thinking it's, it's free advertising. Right. Like, but then those guys are making like, you know, oh, I sold a Deadpool and that guy sold a Deadpool. And so therefore the money is spread very thin among all of us. Right. Yeah. And, and yet Marvel just made billions of dollars <laughs> and we helped them, but yeah. we're not getting paid for that. So why are we doing their marketing people's work? Yeah. I mean, it, it's kind you of uh, both ways. It's, I, I could see it. Um, yeah. Yeah. That, so <laughs> I I have a couple. First off, since we're on the the commission things, what's the your favorite commission you've ever done? Oh wow! Um, like as in like a piece that was just a, uh, yeah not whatever a job, but a commission for yeah a, for a, for an individual yeah. Whew. Got to think about that. Well, hmm. Well, okay, I've gotten the opportunity to do some fully painted commissions, and those are really a blast. Uh, wow, I don't know. <laughs> I think, you know, it's funny. I, I did a piece a few years ago that I did for myself, and I sold it, and then it led to other pictures that I did, and it was a picture of magic from the New Mutants. Mm. And I just love that character. I've always loved that character for some reason. Um, and, and I did this one drawing and it just keeps coming back to me. Like I keep wanting to draw the same drawing again. So like, that's one of them. Actually, someone this year came up with a really cool one, uh, that I really enjoyed doing. It was, um, uh, Craven, the hunter standing in front of a wall of heads and like Spider-Man's head, Captain America's head, Iron Man's head, the rhino's head, like all these different you know, like, you know, like instead of deer, it's all yeah. the heroes on oh. the wall. And he's just standing there looking really proud of himself. Yeah, and that like, was really fun. Cause it was like, you know, he didn't tell me what heads to put on the wall. I just started doing it. And he's like, 
oh shit, that's Captain America. You know? it's like, <laughs> that's it's awesome. Gruesome, but I, I have kind of a dark, uh, I, I, I kind of have a dark uh, sense of humor, so I like that kind of stuff. That's awesome. No, it's, it sounds really cool. Uh, you were talking about only, uh, you know, doing the only living boy and the only living girl because you wanted your your you know your ten year old at the time to read it. So, yeah. what did you? What did your your son think about it? Your kids think about it when you showed him that? And then <laughs> what did, what was the what was the response from not only the younger audience once you put it out into the world, but what was the response from the parents? Well, okay, so so the response to that book has always been really positive. Uh, I like, I've only ever felt like positivity from people about it. Uh, my son read it, but by the time it came out, he was a little older, so it didn't hit him the same way. But my daughter was just getting old enough and she ate it up. She loved it. So like, you know, it's funny how you like, well, he's 10 now. When I get this book out, he's he's gonna be fourteen. You know, it's like ah. So that's when you give him the Batman, with the... <laughs> right? Exactly. Yeah. So the the but but then my daughter was then you know eight years old, and it was like okay, she she's really into it. So you know, it, it's a funny like you know. Um, so she really dug it, and and the the cool thing I think one of the things about one of the great things about working on it is there's a lot of really quiet kids who don't want to talk to an adult about anything. Right. But their parents come up and they'll say like, they'll look at it and you'll see the parent go, you should read this. This looks really, really cool. And the kid's like, no, I don't want to see it. Right. And then the, and then the parents like, nah, you, you know, they're buying it for themselves. Right. And then they buy it and then they come back the next day and they're like, he loved it or she loved it. You know, and the kid's still sitting there, like hiding, right? And, he, and he's like, yeah, "I loved it too." And like, and then they're like, "Do you have any more?" And like, literally, like we get as many adult fans as we get kid fans. That's awesome. And and I think that's the exciting part. Like we put we put Only Living Boy up on um, Tapastic for a while. Well, it still is up there, but our biggest audience by leaps and bounds was eighteen to twenty year old women. That's interesting. I wouldn't by have a lot. Like thirty, forty thousand, like more than anybody else. Hmm. Yeah, I, and 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 I don't know. We don't know why, right? But we're like, okay, like, well, I mean, I mean, there's a. I think I think that there's there's a need for all these different kinds of stories. You know what I mean? And and when the comic industry at times has gotten very single-minded about what they put out and very risk averse Uh, over the years. Like, you know what, that's why they end up having six different titles of the same character because they're afraid to put a new character in because the new character may not sell. And even if the sixth title of Spider-Man is doing terribly, well, it's doing probably better than the first issue of nobody heard of them character you know so they're not i think they run this very thin line between trying new things and being risk averse and there's every once in a while like dc like i think it was two years ago or last year came out with this whole new line of books for young adults that was like a recreation of the characters 
um, I forget what they called it, and they were really good, like um, really, really good. It was like, but they were taking the characters from less of a standpoint of them as superheroes, but more as uh, people living with superpowers. Kind of like, I don't know if you've ever read the X-Men when the X-Men were living in San Francisco. Because mm-hmm. it was a long time ago. Um, but the issues were like, you'd see the X-Men kind of like dealing with, like, the, you know, the X-Men would go and fight Magneto or whatever, but then they'd be hanging out in a house in, in, uh, in San Francisco. And remember what I was saying about everyone sitting around talking for nine pages? They didn't just sit around and talk. They'd be like, you felt like you were hanging out in a home with a bunch of your friends and they weren't sitting around talking like Wolverine would be drinking a beer and, you know, Nightcrawler would be throwing like spitballs at Colossus and Colossus would be getting upset because Nightcrawler would be jumping all over the place. And, you know, Shadowcat would be yelling at him for bothering Colossus. And like, meanwhile, someone's trying to get a conversation through about something important and not being able to, it was like having a family. Right. Yeah. And there was a certain life to that kind of, the energy of of uh, very human characters, and I think that they were they, like I remember reading the Raven book that they did through that young adult um, line, and it had that same feel of like this is really about a kid dealing with the fact that she's a runaway, mm. you know, and the superpowers are part of it too, but it's it's a it's a balance of the two. And it gets really, you know, and so you can be dramatic and be it's just a different kind of story. It's more like the kind of story you would get in a young adult novel, just drawn. And, um, and so I thought that was pretty, I thought that was pretty cool and risky of them and to really take chances on how to, uh, you know, how to revivify characters or, you know, find a new, find a new audience for these characters and, and maybe, you know, but that's, it's dangerous for a company because, yeah. you know, they always have to look at their bottom line. Yeah. You do, you, do you think that's why there's such a big, like, it's probably the biggest time that I could remember in my, you know, comic book life that there's a, a big influx of this huge indie movement now because the big, like, there's no more vertigo. There's no more, right. you know, there's really just image. Yeah. Um, you know, aftershock maybe some of these smaller independent guys, but there's a there's a big influx of of indie well, comics. Kickstarter does a lot for that. Yeah, and and Kickstarter you know? as well too. I mean, like you know, before Kickstarter, putting together an indie book meant that you had to pay for it all yourself, and then maybe you could get Diamond interested in it, but probably not. You know, right. like like I remember I did. I mean, so uh, you know Fred Van Linty. Not personally, no. Well, you know what I mean, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so he and I went to college together, and we did comics back then that we ended up publishing many, many years later. Um, and one of the series was called Tranquility, which we had to fund all ourselves. We had to, like, put together, like, 12 grand to try to publish the book. And then Diamond didn't even want to talk to us. So we had to find someone else to be our publisher just to get Diamond to even look at us. And then we had to pay Diamond to get an ad. I mean, it was just basically like, you know, and then and then the book didn't sell enough to make the money, so we were we were losing money hand over fist. You know, if we had Kickstarter, 
I oh, could yeah. have blackmailed my family into paying for it, you know, or my friends, you know. <laughs> you know? Um, and then, you know, a, 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 another project that we did, uh, the friend and I did was a book called The Silencers. Um, and uh, eventually re- got reprinted through Dark Horse. But we started off with a small publisher because we had just been burned on trying to publish it ourselves. And we go to the small publisher and then we got burned at the small publisher because the small publisher's accounting was all kind of cockeyed. Right. And then, okay. So now we, you know, we, this, you know, this project got, you know, killed twice. If we'd had Kickstarter, we'd probably be on issue 105, you know, because I mean, it was a solid book. And when people read it, they liked it. They just couldn't get it in the stores. You know, they couldn't get their hands on it. So stores were really adverse to trying independent comics for a long time. Like there was the eighties when everything was kind of like, you know, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, but then the night, like, I guess the early 2000s, it just all closed up. Um, and they were only going to take a risk on Marvel and DC. And I think now you can kind of prove your track record, right? Yeah. On Kickstarter. Yeah. You're like, yeah, this book sells. We know we have, you know, X number of people who want to buy it. And we make just enough extra money. You know, we printed a thousand copies for the people who bought it. And we have just enough extra money to print 9,000 others so that we can ship them off to comic book stores and they already are paid for. Yeah. And, and no one has to take a risk on it. Yeah. And it's, you it's know? huge too for, you know, someone new just trying to get into it and they, they yeah. want to get into comics and they don't even have an audience yet yeah. that they could just, that's how they, you know, develop their audience and, and get their books out. And, you know, it's, it's really an awesome thing. And I know you did one for uh, uh Thornclaw Manor, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, that's not that's not a comic, but yeah, but, but you you've, you're 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 I've been wanting to do another comic one because it's like I have a feeling that the comic for me the comic would be more what people expect from you. you. Know what I mean, yeah, yeah. What was your experience uh, doing the Kickstarter though? Because um, well, that's technically my third Kickstarter. Uh, so I had a lot kind of figured out on this one but it's still you know a crapshoot um i was kind of hoping to make more of a reach than i did but i think you always feel that way for Um, sure and uh so you know that there's that but but what's nice is you know like you do the kickstarter and now i have books and decks that i can sell for the next year or two right you know so that's that's kind of like really that's that's kind of the way the the that you know that'll help pay for conventions going you know in the future or whatever you know like oh yeah i can sell a couple of decks and i'm done and and so what was cool about the thorn claws is it was like a weird little thing that i started doing at fantasy at fantasy cons like gen con and i was just i just drew um my wife and i were watching downton abbey okay and I was that, kind of bored. That is such a that is such like a weird way to yeah, get well, to. <laughs> yeah. Well. Okay. So. But I see it when you say it. Yeah. Yeah. So. So like, I was kind of bored. We were watching Downton Abbey, and I'm like, okay, uh, I gotta draw something. So I started drawing um, the characters from Downton Abbey as monsters, and then it just started creating this story. Like it was like literally like oh, so <clears throat> there are these monsters. They live as this mansion. There's this you know. 
The mother of the house is this evil demon creature that controls them all and manipulates them all. And they're all trying to, you know, get her approval so that they can be the ones that inherit the, 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 uh, the, the, the mansion after she dies. And, you know, and I'm like, oh, yeah, okay. And then, you know, you can have the butler and you can have the, the nanny and the little kids and the, the, uh, the creepy uncles and, the, you know, like everybody just kind of filled in. It was like suddenly this giant family. And it keeps growing because every time I turn around, there's a new character that kind of needs to fill in. And um, so, it, I, so I started just bringing around Prince to, uh, to some conventions and I did one of Mr. of Cthulhu with a with a top hat and an eyepiece, and people just dug it, right? So For I was sure, like, okay. I was I was going to mention that one. That's yeah, so, so, it's so cool. Yeah, so I did that, and people were just like all over it. So I'm like, okay. So someone I don't know who told me, oh, you should make a playing card deck because you know you have enough cards that you can make each character into a a member in the suit, you know, so your family becomes. So I went and made the first deck. And I didn't even, you know, I, did, I got them printed like, you know, print on demand. So they were, they were decent, but they weren't like great card decks. Right. And um, so I brought them to conventions and I would just sell them out. Like to the, the point where I'm like, oh crap, I'm three days at the convention and I'm out of them the first day. Oh, wow. Yeah. What am I going to do? You know? So like, so then I'm like, okay, well I'll do a Kickstarter. So I did the first deck as a Kickstarter. And, um, and so that, and that was really fun. I like, like, I'm like, I'm just going to play it up for laughs and kind of make a weird little video of me running around the woods talking about this strange family I discovered, right? And uh, and so, like, you know, then I made the video and we did the the thing. And I, I spent a lot of time kind of just really designing the deck. And um, because we hit the goals, I was able to put silver on the cards. And then I learned something really amazing about human beings. Human beings are crows. Because I brought the decks to the shows and I would just take the cards out and put them on my desk because the, the box didn't have silver on it, but the individual cards inside did. So I just take them out and put them up. And the minute just literally putting them out, people would just walk over. Like it was like the sparkle would just kind of like light up their eyes and they'd come walking over like, what is that? You know, and then they'd see Cthulhu in a top hat and they're like, I have to have that. And I didn't even have to say anything, you know. And so like so suddenly I'm like, OK, cool. This is working. All right. It was the first time I ever felt like, oh, I made a thing that I don't even have to think about selling it. Yeah, it hit like you know that I mean? that cultural zeitgeist thing. Yeah, whatever that is. Happened. So so I did that and then and so I think like one of the reasons why the Kickstarter was a little disappointing was because well, it was kick it COVID kind of kicked it in the pants this time around. I think I could have done a lot better. But also there were no conventions I could go to to support it. And I really like when I bring those cards to conventions, I can't hold on to them. But right. online, they don't have that same spot. Yeah. Right? So, so like, I'm really excited to take them to shows and to show them off because the little weird designer in me was like, so we'll get silver on the boxes and we'll make the boxes out of paper that feels really, really old and nice. So the paper of the boxes has this like extra special like texture to it. So you hold it in your hand and it has that like yeah. kind of feel to it. And then you, and it feels super special. And then you pop it open and all the cards have silver on them. So it was like, I was like, I'm going to make candy in card form. That's like awesome. what can I do to make like yeah. candy? And yeah. it just made me happy, you know? So, 
I did the first Kickstarter and I sold out of a thousand decks. Oh, wow. And so I was like, well, I got to do another Kickstarter. So I made a new deck. And the, so now I have, I redid the first deck. Now the box has silver on it. And I did a whole new deck with silver all over it. And, and like, and, and, and a different theme kind of color wise so that you could play, use the two decks as two different decks. And, uh, and, and so I kind of want to continue just making more decks and that, but because I've always been involved in like, I've always loved comics and games. To me, they were never a difference between like role-playing games and comics. It was always the same people. We'd sit around, we'd read comics and then we'd play D and D. So I kind of want to, I'm, I'm kind of talking to some people about making a Thornclaw game. That'd be awesome. And, uh, you know, and basically the idea would be you play one of the family members and you're trying to make everybody else look bad so that you're the only one who gets the inheritance. That's, oh man, what a, what a cool so, like party game. Right, yeah, that's what I was thinking. Like, you know, you, you could have like 20 people playing and you're all trying to stab each other in the back. You know, yeah. like that's the, yeah. so I, I, I'm still working on how to make that happen. But we have a theme, we have kind of the setup and all, but, you know, it's, it's so it's exciting to like have things like, you know, and, and I think the the thing that, what really comes through, like when I, when we go to shows and, and what's exciting when, when I'm sitting there with David and we're working on set, like we're pitching out the only living boy to people, right. We're high on our project. And when you're high on your project, it's infectious, Mm -hmm. you know, and then other people get it and then they infect you more. Right. And then you're like, you're suddenly like, it just keeps going up. Right. So yeah. there's something like in this super high energy state where like, it's like, yeah, you know, so David's up there talking the whole time, basically saying, yeah, only living boy. And he has like a pitch phrase that we practice ahead of time. You know, he's like everyone that walks up to, Oh, have you seen the only living boy? What is it? Oh, it's about this. And he has it nailed. Right. And they'll talk different things about it afterwards, but he has like the first introduction is the same pretty much every time. And I'm like, so we'll go to shows where like nobody's selling anything and David is selling more books That's because awesome. anybody that goes there gets a pitch from him and he talks to them. So there's a certain amount of that. Like we were talking about before being a, you know, a salesperson of your own, you know, you're your own best advocate for sure. Um, and if you're excited about it, that's infectious. But if you hide behind your table, you know, and like there are there are a lot of professionals who've been in the business for 40 years, 50 years who are used to sitting at a drawing table and not used to talking. Yeah. And, and you see it. Right. And they're the ones that aren't doing so great when they're selling stuff at a con, you know? Yeah. I, but, you know, it, it's uh, it's really interesting that you say like the the energy thing. And, yeah. and the, the biggest cheerleader for your product needs to be you. Yeah. Cause like if, if you're not excited about it, how is someone else going to be excited about it? Like how well, are they even infect someone else? That's powerful. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. Yeah. For sure. Uh, so as a, you know, as a, as an artist, what, what do you look for in stories that you're going to um, eventually draw? Like, like, what do you, what do you, I mean, obviously you have, you know, your, your likes that you want, but like, yeah. what makes you want to work on a project? Well, you know, it, it, it's funny because like, I, I fight with that a lot because the, 
I really enjoy psychological stories. I really enjoy stories that get into the character's head and really mess with them. Um, you know, like, no, I don't want to talk about Only Living Boys, so I'm going to talk about a different one. The silencers that I did with Fred Van Lenty, the main character was a, they have, they're super-powered mobsters. And the, basically, it's fun to create a character, like, he was visually interesting, he dressed like a, he dressed like a priest. And he basically was an old Italian mobster who was kind of screwed into becoming like he was supposed to be, he was supposed to become a priest and was screwed into becoming a mafia hitman. And, uh, and so now his life is, he basically made a decision that if this is his life, this is the path God put him in. So he's going to be the best at the thing that God made him be. So if God wants him to be a killer, he's going to be the best damn killer out there. And so he becomes the the hitman that the mob is terrified of. And then he gets superpowers. On top of so, it. <laughs> yeah. And so like, so he's already like uh he's already this character who is completely torn about who he is and has kind of given up on hope in a way. And and yet the the story begins with him wanting to retire from the mob. And trying to figure out how do you retire from the mob without the mob knowing? Oh, thank you. Without the mob knowing, uh, without the mob figuring out what you're doing. And so, like literally, the first book is him setting up a plan to make it look like he's been murdered, so that the mafia don't realize that he's going to move to Bensonhurst and have a flower shop. Like that's his dream. That's awesome. So, so what I like about it is like, like is being able to find characters who. like have their own drive and no matter like, cause that character right there, like we could throw any situation at that character and we didn't know what he was going to do. He told us mm. like we would like Fred and I would sit there and talk about it. We'd be like, well, you know, let's try and get him to do this. And then you'd start to look at the story and look at the character. Like he would never ever go along with that. You know, he wouldn't yeah. do that. And he comes up with a whole other way of handling the situation than you ever would have thought of, right? And 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 that to me, that's the exciting part is when you have characters that take on that kind of life, and then being able to make them visually interesting too, and exciting to look at. Like I want to make every page exciting. Um, you know, uh, one of my one of my friends, this guy Fred Harper, he did a bunch of comics back in the early '90s, and then kind of went into caricature art. And, uh, and, and stopped doing comics and he's been doing them again recently. But one of the things he did that was so exciting is you would like, he would have a page and he's like, yeah, I don't want to draw a bunch of people standing around talking. So what did he do? He would draw these like, so like you'd have the characters in the background talking while something crazy, like, so say two characters in a diner talking, they'd be in the far distance while the waitress is spilling coffee on a, on a client who just tried to slap her in the ass, right? He'd create all these other stories that were really fun to watch while this dialogue is kind of happening in the background. 
That's a, that's a good trick. That's yeah, a good and it was really and yeah, he really uh, you know he was he's really good at that. He's really good at kind of throwing in these fun little humorous moments that the writer didn't plan to put in there. And 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 then also he would do things like the cup of coffee, the steam from that cup would go into every panel. So he oh, really cool. created some beautiful tableaus. Like the whole page was a beautiful piece of art. And I I try to do that. I don't necessarily think I I always succeed, but I like the idea of every page being a piece of art in and of itself, but then having to tell the story. Like f- there are a lot of people who will make a beautiful piece of art, but you can't tell what you're supposed to look at. So like the two requirements are it has to be beautiful to look at and tell the story clearly. And if I don't do that, I have to start over. Right. And that, and then going back to our, our original thing, that's what makes traditional art so, you know, um, there, there's a consequences to some of that stuff. Yeah. 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 But I mean, you know, the, 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 you know, if you ever see like originals by like Chris Pachalo from way back or, you know, Bill Sienkiewicz or any of those guys, you'll see them cut the pages out. Uh, you know, you can tell, I really like this figure, but I screwed up the whole background. They cut it out and paste it onto another piece and then draw the background in or whatever. You That's see awesome. that all the time. I mean, those guys are just the obvious ones, but a lot of them, that was what you did. You just took the piece of art and you're like, okay, well, it's not going to show in the reproduction, so I'm going to cut it out. So there's all these, like, the 80s and 70s pieces of art that is, like, you know, layers of cardstock, you know, or, I mean, uh, you know, Bristol paper, with, you know, where they said, oh, that sucks. And, you know, they, they sliced off another piece of paper and laid it on, or they used a, like, they used white out, like, you know, paint you know, over yeah. the page. And then, you know, but I mean, you know, it, it, there was an excitement to that. The thing I really like about that is the excitement of like old Chris Pachalo and Bill Sienkiewicz and a bunch of the people from that time period where like, they're like, I'm just going to pull out a toothbrush and just spatter all over the page. And why not? It creates a cool texture, you know? And then, oh, if I don't like that, I'll throw on some Zipatone. You'll see guys like Eric Canetti now will do that uh, on some of his stuff. I don't know if he does the splatter, but he does, he'll paint back into his stuff, especially in his sketches, like the stuff he does for for convention sketches and all. And it's exciting to see there's this, like, interplay with the media that makes it kind of bounce. It's not just a simple line drawing, you know, where it's like an outline or whatever. There's a... I mean that that guy's a that guy Eric Kennedy always like every time I look at what he's doing on Twitch I'm just like holy crap like you yeah. know what's he gonna do next like I you know um, but Bill Sienkiewicz is the same way like there's so much energy and life to this stuff you're like where does he get that from like you know yeah. I uh, you know just listening to you talk it's just it's it's really cool um, it makes me want to draw and I have no idea how to draw like I. I <laughs> Um, but like you, you started that, the, the, uh, forgive me if I met uh, the arts, the free art school. Oh yeah. The monster art school. Class. Yeah, yeah. So you talk, yeah. talk a little bit about that. Cause I oh, definitely, yeah. I've been definitely pulling out, uh, my oh, pen cool. and paper and trying to do it. It's awful. That's awesome. But it's, cool. I'm not good at it, but it's yeah, fun. But it's fun. It's fun to, to mess around with it and learn. Cause I never yeah, knew I mean, that. That's, that's why I did it. You know, like, um, there's a lot of places online where the artist will teach you how to do like the super duper serious techniques. And, uh, and I wanted to do like when, when, when my kids were, you know, out of school because of the, the coronavirus, I was like, all right, 
Uh, if my kids aren't doing anything, it was actually kind of a, 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 a what do you call it? A way of engaging my daughter because she loves to draw. So basically we, for the first few months, we were doing it together until she kind of got bored of it. Um, but we would do it together. So she'd be my partner. So we would draw together and, and we, we just started doing it and, and people started following it. It was really, just really exciting. And like, you'd get all these comments and it, it, it got to a point where I, I was doing it every single day and I did it every single day for like, oh man, five months. Wow. And I couldn't get anything else done and I needed to stop for a little bit. And then once I stopped, it was really hard to get back in. So I'm trying to figure out a way of working it out so that I can't do it every day, but maybe I can do it, you know, every couple of days and try to have a schedule and and maybe make it work out. Like, I don't want to charge people for it. So, you know, if I could get like enough people on YouTube to watch it, I can, you know, or subscribe, I could get like YouTube sponsorships or something like that. Cause I want what I wanted from it. And what was really felt like I was connecting was, people who had kids at home and didn't know what the hell to do because they had to work had at least an hour every day where the kid could sit and draw something cool, you know, yeah. and learn about, and learn about drawing, you know? And um, it got a little repetitive because I'd go over a lot of the same, you know, kind of stages and steps and the building blocks. And, you know, I tried not to be too repetitive, but, you know, after a while you kind of have, like, it's funny how much it's the same stuff I'm teaching my students at, at Syracuse. It's just a, it's just sim- a little simpler, but not even really. Cause it's all the same information. It's just how you, how you parse it, you know, how you put it together. And um, sometimes I think those classes are sometimes more successful than the ones I'm able to do with this, with my college students. Uh, not because the college students aren't doing well, but just, I feel like it's, you parse it down to such easy things that it's easier to see the steps. It's real easy to get complicated and overthink it and then, you know, talk all high-minded and then lose your class. So like sometimes I'm worried about that, you know, with, with the real, with the, with the school classes, but the monster art schools are just this fun way to kind of like draw these, you know, draw these fun creatures and then be able to, you know, uh, interact like yeah i get like five-year-old kids going draw you know a devil dinosaur or draw you know a a demon or draw you know something that my parents would never want to hear that i ever said in public you know and you know and then you draw it in the next class you know and and then they draw it and they show it to their parents and you know their parents kind of shake their head and go that's great um but it's really you know it's been it's really really fun and it and it it's something i i like I said, if I, I got waylaid by a big deadline and um, I want to get back to doing more monster art schools soon. Um, and, you know, hopefully COVID will last longer and I could just keep, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> uh, no, I mean, like I figure the way, like I was kind of went back in August. I was like, well, you know, or not August when it, when was it? It was like June or July. I was like, well, this is probably going to end soon. So maybe I should, you know, chill out. I have to get my other work done, you know, focus on that for a bit and and it's still here. So maybe there's still more monster art schools I have to do, you know? And then after that, but you know, at a certain point I was trying to figure out how do I make it into a situation where I don't care about making money doing it. I just cared that it was not costing too much to do it. 
from the projects that I need to do, you know? Right. For sure. So it's like a, it's like a, if, if I could buy myself an hour a week to do that out of my schedule, then it makes sense to do it every day. You know what I mean? Like, but if I can't do that, it became really, really hard. Like trying to juggle family and, and, and projects and all this other stuff and Kickstarters and, and make it all work was, Oh, I, you know? Yeah. I, I completely understand. Um, with that, like where, where can people, people like, uh, find you on social media and, and all that good stuff. And what's, uh, anything coming in the pipeline soon? Well, okay. I pretty much cornered the market on the phrase Steve Ellis art. (laughs) (laughs) So on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, that's where I'm at. Um, and, and also my website is steveellisart.com. And, uh, also the Thornclaw stuff is at Thornclaw Manor. Um, dot com, but it pretty much ends up, I mean, Thornclaw Manor at Instagram and there's a Thornclaw Manor webpage that I try to put stuff up. I mean, a Facebook page that I try to put stuff up on to, you know, like videos and things like that, a process and stuff like that. Um, so I probably have way too many ways to find me, but the best way is probably the Steve Ellis art, like hashtag on like Twitter or Instagram. Um, and I've been really trying to work with my Instagram to get it, you know, to be able to reach more people. And, uh, and that's been, that's been really fun. Like it's actually just like the last month or so I've been working with David actually to help me get my posts. I didn't realize it's the same thing as with conventions, right? I'll put the artwork out and people go, Oh, that's cool. And they move on, but it needed the pitch. Right. So David writes text for my, helps me write the text for the Instagram post. And then you're like, Oh, it's the combination. And people are like, Oh, wow. I want to look at this now and read about what the thought process was. And it becomes this suddenly like, you know, it goes from 10 people noticing it to 500 people. And it's like, Oh, great. Okay. So there's a, there's a magic to that combination of words and pictures that even Instagram is like a comic, you know, it's like, yeah, for sure. Yeah. That's, that's how I found out about monster school. Yeah. Oh yeah. It was Instagram. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. That's cool. Yeah, because I was doing them on Facebook, and basically, I don't, I, I so, so the, the, the story is, I started doing them on Facebook, struggling with the technology every single day, trying to make it work, so there's all these videos of, like, the camera flopping, because <laughs> that's just not my, yeah, it's not my thing, right? So I, I tried to learn all the different editing programs, and try to cut them down, and, you know, like, like, so I, I tried to learn iMovie and and then that wasn't working so I I I was lucky enough to have the 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 um Adobe suite so I downloaded Adobe Premiere and I tried that and that was like oh my god like you know you have to be a professional like film you know what do you call it director uh, uh editor to know how to use it and then just last night I was looking at my my cuz I all my classes I'm videotaping for my students right so I just found Adobe Premiere Rush, which is like, it's like iMovie, but easier and more intuitive. So I'm like, I can do this. So I edited a video today and put it on YouTube. And I was like, it worked. And it's got music and it's got words at the front and everything. And like, it actually can look professional. So I'm, I'm trying to go through all the older monster art schools and make them a little bit more concise. Cause there's a lot of like, mess in there of like 
you know, oh, I dropped my pencil. Ha ha. Let's, you know, like, you know what I mean? Like stuff that just doesn't need to be in there. Um, and, you know, and maybe make it a little bit cleaner, a little less, you know, whatever. I mean, um, but, you know, so, so that I've been trying to make it a little bit more like that, you know, have intro pictures and stuff like that. <laughs> Cause I was just, literally, I would just hold them a picture. It's monster art school. And then I'd start drawing. You know? <laughs> so like, you know, I, it would be nice to be a little bit more professional about it because it's nice to have that that yeah. kind of a little bit more. Yeah, I, yeah, but, for, for sure. And but there, there's also something endearing about the the messiness, like we were talking about, right? Like, yeah, no, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I mean, yeah, but you know, at a certain point, like, it's sad. You get to a point where you have to be professional about everything. For sure, you know. Yeah, no, and, I completely uh, agree. Yeah, you can't, you know, and, it, and it's it's a little sad because that energy of that kind of like, well, we're just going to try and pull it off, you know, <laughs> however it works out. You know, it works for a while, and then people start saying, you really enjoy being this unprofessional? <laughs> and then you're like, no, okay, I, got, I guess I got to. Yeah. But, you know, I don't know. It's, it's, it's like if I had a team of editors – you know, I could we could maybe keep that sweetness of the yeah. of the messiness and have someone else make it look, you know, excellent and still messy. And I, you know, but you know, it, it, it's fun. I'm I'm, I'm going to do more of them. I, I just like you know, it's just fun to draw for kids because the 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 fun part is and and actually adults too because like the fun part is is getting people responding mm-hmm. and saying showing me their drawings. And saying, I, you know, like, and the grownups is great because they're like, I've never been able to draw in my life. And they show this drawing. And yeah, it's my drawing through their eyes, but they did it. You know, and it's like they did something they never could do before and they didn't think they could do, you know. And I think also after a while with COVID, everything went back to everyone going back to their jobs. There was a lot more room for them to have time to show up to that kind of stuff. So the adults weren't showing up. And then the kids started having school again and it just stopped being, it stopped, you know, like there was less, it was less wild West to really fit in there, you know? For sure. So, um, so I got, I want to figure out like, I don't know if it's a weekend thing or, or, you know, somehow an after school thing or whatever. Cause like, you know, my, my daughter is in school till three o'clock. Like she would be, you know, she sits on our couch, but it's like she would be in school in school, you know? So she doesn't have the time to do it anymore in that time period. And so, you know, it's just trying to figure out that, that sweet spot for it. Yeah, for sure. Um, any other projects on the pipeline? Well, the Thornclaw Manor book and the decks are done. Uh, the book is being printed at this moment. Unfortunately, it took longer the, with the printer getting it taken care of. And so it's like, you know, of course it always takes longer than you expect, but I didn't expect it to take that long. Um, and then David and I are, are working on the, the third Only Living Girl book um, so we can get the, the series uh, finished. And I'm kind of, I've been kind of cooking up some of my own little weird projects on the side. Um, I don't even know if, how much I want to say about it, but uh, it's, it's going to be a horror book and it's going to be about madness. Nice. Right up my alley. That's awesome. Yeah, it, it's going to be, yeah, I mean, like, basically, I want to take 
a uh, okay i'll say it this way i'm going to take something that is very very familiar to everyone and i want to push it to the extreme example of it and make it really crazy and really fun that's, awesome. that's not vague enough for you. I just don't want to talk about it too much yet because I'm like, I'm really excited about it. And I'm like, if I talk about it too much, um, you know, I lose the steam. Yeah. No, I completely so, get it. Are, yeah, but, are you, but, is it a comic? Yeah, it's a comic and it's, it's a, um, it's a comic and it's kind of superhero and kind of horror. I love and it. Mostly horror. That's awesome. And it, and it, and it, and it, and it, and it has a lot of the same influences that I, like that, you know, that I, that I've always kind of gone back to like, um, you know, like, uh, the, the kind of the Arthur Machen, Robert Chambers, HP Lovecraft, stuff like that. But then hopefully with a twist that no one's done yet. Nice. That's what I'm hoping. That's awesome. That's yeah. right. Are you writing it as well? Um, well, yeah, probably. I'm I think so. I'm not sure. Like I kind of brought it to, uh, a writer and and we were talking about it and I was like, I don't know if anyone sees what I see in here right now. And what I ha- see in here is a lot more insane than I think other people realize I want to go to like, like there's gotta be a certain amount of madness to the project that if you get it wrong, it feels hokey. Right. For sure. Or campy. Mm-hmm. And I, that's not, that's not where I wanted to go with it. So I have a very, very distinct vision of what I'm looking for. Um, and, uh, but like I said, it's like a, it's like take a very, very popular hero that, you know, and then throw it into the Cthulhu mythos and mix it up. That sounds That's awesome. kind of the idea. That sounds awesome. That's and definitely so, right up my alley. Yeah. So yeah, it, 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 it's lots of insanity and lots of obsession and lots of, death and lots of uh of of uh craziness and and taking things to a hopefully to a level that no one's taken them before in, awesome. in a certain direction i hope i don't know well i'm i'm, <laughs> I'm, def- I'm definitely looking forward to it um yeah we've uh i could sit here and talk to you forever steve we've <laughs> already- <laughs> yeah well i uh, i appreciate you uh coming on and uh you know we got to do this again some t- another time. That'd be great. Yeah. Yeah. Even if it's not a podcast, it sounds cool. Yeah, for sure. Uh, well, thank you again. <laughs> Hopefully I'll see you at a convention soon too. Yes. When they come back. Yes. Where are you? Where are you at? You're, you're in the Midwest. Yeah. I'm in Chicago. In Chicago. Oh, wow. Okay. I have some very, very, I, I love Chicago. So I love going over there. I have yeah. a lot of good friends there. Have you, have you been to C2E2? Oh yeah. 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 I was there. Man, I think I was there. Well, I was at New York Comic Con at their first show and was there. I only missed one. And I think C2E2, I was there for like the first. I was there before it was C2E2. And then I was there for the first bunch of them when it was C2E2. Nice. And then just got busy and, you know, couldn't do them all. There's well, so many conventions now. You know, yeah. it's like it's it's madness how, how many conventions there are. Well, as soon as you know conventions kick back up, we yeah. gotta we gotta make it a point to to that'd be see actually really cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. For sure. I like the idea of like that's the one good thing about this is that I've been meeting people. Like we had a, a meetup of all the creators from the Artist Alley at at, C, at uh, New York Comic Con. The guy who runs the Artist Alley kind of said, "Hey, everybody, come in," and we all got to talk. And like there were people there who I've sat next to at conventions and never got a chance to talk to. Cause I was at 
you know, New York Comic Con and you're inundated by people. And we actually got a chance to talk. And now I'm like, next time I go to New York Comic Con, I know like 20 more people that I can go and hang out with. That's so, awesome. Yeah, it really, it really made, um, I think in some ways it's like a, a rest year because the convention grind gets pretty intense. Oh, for sure. And, and yeah. taking a year off from that can maybe reset. Now yeah. I'm excited to go to cons instead of going, oh, no, not this weekend, too. <laughs> yeah, you know? for sure. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I'm sure the the first few cons that actually are able to run successfully, the energy is going to be. Oh, uh, bananas, through. I'm sure. Yeah. 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 Well, yeah. well, Steve, I uh, appreciate it. And uh, yeah, thank you so much. Yeah. Andrew. Yeah. Really great. Yeah. No worries.